0: few days ago. It's a list of what uh, are called the worst headlines from actual newspapers in North America. These are the worst headlines, and as I read them, you'll understand why they fit this bill. One headline said this, something went wrong in jet crash, expert says. Now, there's great insight for you. Another headline said, police begin campaign to run down jaywalkers. They deserve it. Safety experts say passengers should be belted. All right. Maybe that'll help. Farmer Bill dies in house. Now, you've got to think about that one a moment. Farmer Bill dies in house. enraged cow injures farmer with axe I'm not sure who had the axe but uh, somebody was hurt cold wave linked to temperatures now that had to be Minnesota that had to be Minnesota and then I think my favorite says new study of obesity looks for larger test group (laughs) well I think I could fit that bill If we were to get a headline for what we're going to read in Luke chapter 1, it might be, Son of the Highest comes for the Lowest. The angel said to Mary, verse 30, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of God. Of the most high the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever his kingdom will never end the name with Christmas glory that we see in verse 32 is son of the most high this name captures the unique nature of Messiah and establishes his solitary right to rule over humanity. A point that I hope will grip your heart and mind today is this, that the Son of the Most High has the right to be the ruler of your life and mine. The Son of the Most High has the right to be the ruler of your life and mine. I want you to see that Jesus Christ has that right and that you could have no greater privilege or hope than to give him the throne of your life today. There are two truths that flow out of this name for Messiah, the Son of the Most High. The first truth is this, that he, the Messiah, is God's co-equal. That's what the name means, that he, the Messiah, is God's co-equal. This name, Most High, that we see in verse 32 is the Greek equivalent to the Old Testament Hebrew name for God, El Yon, E-L-Y-O-N, as we would spell it. That name reveals that God, the true God, is the one who is of supreme might and power. It is a name for God that means that he has no equal, Yon is used in the Old Testament 49 times. And in the New Testament, we see the name Most High 9 times. We see it in verse 32, again in verse 35. The angel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. In verse 76... It says, And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. That is Zechariah's song regarding his son to be born, who was called John the Baptist. Luke again uses this term for God, Most High, twice in his gospel, one of which we'll see a little bit later. This name, Elyon, is a derivative from a Hebrew verb, Allah, which means to go up, to go up. It is a noun taken from that, and it is used of persons or things to indicate their elevation above others. When it's applied to God, it means that he is the lifted-up one. He is the exalted one who is above all gods and all men. Think of some of the occurrences of this term in the Old Testament, ones that may be familiar to you. Psalm 91, verse 1. He who dwells in the shelter of the, what? The Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Later in that same psalm it says, If you make the Most High your dwelling, even the Lord who is my refuge, then no harm will befall you. No disaster will come near your tent. In Psalm 92, it begins by saying, It is good to praise the Lord and to make music to your name, O Most High. It is a name that's also used in the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 4, we have these words of the great Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. Now here's the most powerful man in the world in his generation who has been humbled by God in a period of several years of living out insanity. And he says, I lifted up my eyes and I praised the one who is exalted above me, the Most High. In Daniel chapter 5, recounting that, it says, he, Nebuchadnezzar, was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and sets over them anyone he wishes. Elyon, Most High. And here we see that this one who is to be born of Mary will be called the Son of the Most High. Now, when we use that expression, the Son of, we, in our Western thinking, often Imagine that this is one who is generated by the Most High. As we generate our children, we produce our children. And so somehow we we imagine that that's what this name means, but it doesn't. In Oriental, Semitic thought, a son is more than a descendant. To call someone a son in Oriental thinking is to call that person the exact representation... the other for example in Genesis chapter 5 it says regarding Adam when he had lived 130 years he begat now in the English translations they insert a son but that's not in the Hebrew it says he begat in his own likeness in his own image Those two phrases equal son, you see. So the word son is unnecessary in the Hebrew thinking. Adam beget one who is in his own image, who is in his own likeness. That's a son. And so when we see this title that the Christ is the son of the Most High, what it's saying is that this one possesses all of the qualities Of the other. This one who is to be named Jesus, but who will be called the Son of the Most High, possesses all of the qualities of the Most High Himself. It is a name that clearly establishes the equality in nature between God the Father and God the Son, who is coming to be born of Mary. The writer of Hebrews captures this same idea when he says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. The exact representation of His being. That phrase expresses the fact that the Son is personally distinct from the Father. Yet he is literally equal to the Father. It means that he is the adequate imprint of all that the Father is. That word exact representation in the original language is the word character. Character, it's a Greek word. But we use it in English too, don't we? Character. Character. That term at first meant a tool that was used to engrave. Like you would use a tool to engrave in wood, for example. Then it came to mean a stamp or an impress, as in a coin or a seal. Some of you enjoy making Christmas cookies, and to do that you roll out the dough and then you get out the cookie cutter. And you press that cutter down upon that dough and you, you, you form a piece of dough that's the exact representation of that cookie cutter. Now that's a, a crude and simple illustration, but it's the idea here of character. Jesus Christ is the exact impress of God in human flesh. So that when you see him, you see exactly what God is like. There is no name that clearly reveals the deity of Jesus more than this one. He is, in his very essence, all that deity is. That's clearly stated in the Bible. But it took the church literally hundreds of years to figure out how to say that, how to communicate it in, in human terms, to take this biblical concept and to put it out there in language that we could all grasp and agree on. That was done in a final fashion in the 4th century, in what is called the Nicene Creed, although it was not a creed that was fashioned in its final form in Nicaea, or Nicaea, however that's to be pronounced, It was done in Constantinople. Nonetheless, the leaders of the church in the 4th century in 381 gathered together and they agreed upon this statement in the Nicene Creed. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all the ages, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, and here's the phrase I'm pointing toward, of one substance with the Father. Of one substance through the Father. Uh, With the Father, rather. Now, although it was clearly stated then, it continued to be debated for a number of decades. And in 451, a group of church leaders again met in in, uh, the East, and in the Chalcedonian definition of the faith, they made this declaration again. Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, all of us teach unanimously that everyone must confess that our Lord Jesus Christ is one single and same Son who is perfect according to divinity and perfect according to humanity, truly God and truly man, composed of reasonable soul and a body. And then here's the key phrase that I'm looking toward today. Consubstantial with the Father, according to divinity, and consubstantial with us, according to humanity. That word consubstantial is a theological term that means he is of the same essence in his nature. In other words, in his nature, he is of the same essence as God himself, and he is of the same essence as man, the God-man. Well, I can almost hear some of you say, well, doesn't everybody believe that? And the answer is no. Not everyone does. I wish everyone did. It is denied by cults like the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, as well as by our Jewish friends and Muslim friends. It is a truth that is denied by Christian churches that are apostate, that have fallen away from the faith and who deny this truth. This teaching that I'm bringing to you this morning is one that is under growing assault in our culture's pluralistic and tolerant mindset you will see these days the unitarians getting a lot of favorable press especially in the minneapolis newspaper because there's a very large unitarian congregation in minneapolis maybe several of them they deny what i'm saying to you this morning regarding jesus christ Uh, that's one reason they're so popular uh, to the, the press right now because they uphold pluralism and tolerance as they define it. When you don't believe in anything, it's easy to be tolerant. Now, because what I have said is true regarding the nature of Jesus Christ, it is under assault today, and I'll tell you why. Because it undermines tolerance. Tolerance as it's defined in our culture. And because it establishes that there is absolute truth that is measured by the person of Jesus Christ. And our age of relativism does not want to admit that there is any truth that is absolute. And a third reason it's under assault is because it assures... This truth assures that there is a future judgment. And our age does not want to face judgment. Everything is acceptable. Everything is okay. It all passes muster according to our age. But because Jesus Christ is the God-man who came into the world to die for our sins and because he was resurrected from the dead... He has been appointed by God one day to judge all men. This truth of who Jesus is, according to the Bible, cannot coexist with the lies of a godless culture like we are living in. One or the other is going to dominate our culture. That's why it is so important at this Christmas season for us To reiterate and reaffirm the truth of God's word, that the Messiah is God's co-equal, we must never yield ground regarding the unique nature of Jesus. Believers for 2,000 years have at times confessed this truth with the shedding of their own blood, if necessary. And we must be willing to do no less than that. This name, the Son of the Most High, means that Jesus is co-equal with God as the Messiah. But there's a second truth that comes out of this that I hasten on to, and that is that the Messiah is God's King. Not only is he God's co-equal, he is God's King. God's King. That means two things. First, it means that all things in heaven and earth are under his authority. You may recall that uh, in Genesis chapter 14, Abraham returned victorious from the battle where he went to rescue Lot, and he was met by a man who was the king of Salem, as it was called in that day. Later, it was called Jerusalem. So it was a pagan. Gentile city in that day. He was met by Melchizedek, this king, this king-priest of Salem. And he offered to him tithes of all and calls him the priest of the Most High God. Notice that title. The priest of the Most High. Now here's a man who is a Gentile. who by God's providence and God's design down through the generations had come to believe in the Most High God at the same time as Abraham. There were no Jews yet. There was no Israel yet. Abraham was still there. He had not produced a seed yet. And here is this man who is a priest of the Most High God. That name is El Elion. It's a compound name. El, the name for God and then Yon, God the Most High and he is called there the possessor of heaven and earth the possessor of heaven and earth that's why I say to you that Jesus Christ who is Elyon is Messiah's king and that all things in heaven and earth are under his authority. In Deuteronomy 32 and verse 8, it says that El Yon possesses the earth and divided the nations among their assigned territories. Now well, that's an interesting idea. What does it mean? El Yon possessed the earth and divided the nations, their assigned territories. Well, it's reflecting back on Genesis chapter 10. Chronologically, Genesis chapter 11 comes before chapter 10. And in chapter 11, you have the power of Babel and the scattering of humanity as a part of God's judgment. In chapter 10, you have the record of where the descendants of Noah then lived, according to... to uh, Ham, Japheth first, then Ham, and then Shem, or the, for the Semites. And so it was the Lord who decided where these descendants of the sons of Noah would live once they had been scattered. He assigned to them their territories, their boundaries. He has the right to do that. He is Elyon. And then in the book of Daniel, as we pointed out earlier, this book of Gentile prophecy, this name Yon is used a number of times, including in Daniel 4.25, where it says, Seven times will pass by you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Are you tracking with me? I'm saying to you that Elyon is the one who possesses heaven and earth, and as a result of that, he has a right to give it to whomever he wishes. And Jesus Christ is Elyon. He is the Son of the Most High. He rules over all things on the earth, and not only on the earth, but in heaven as well, in the invisible heavenlies that other realm that is all around us, the invisible realm of the angels, is a realm that must obey his authority. Only on two occasions in the New Testament record was Jesus called the Son of the Most High. And both of these times it was spoken by angelic creatures. We read one here in Luke, where the angel, Gabriel, used that term, calling him the Son of the Most High. You may be surprised where the other time occurs. It's also in Luke chapter 8 this time, and verse 28. Jesus and his disciples sailed to the region of the Gasserines, which is across the lake from Galilee, When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Now, who is this that is speaking? It is the demon the fallen angel within this man. And he is the one who acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of the Most High God. Only here and in Luke chapter 1 is Jesus given this name, Son of the Most High. And both times it is confessed by angelic creatures. Now because he is Messiah's king and he rules in the invisible realm of heaven, and the visible realm of earth. It is not surprising to hear him say, just before he goes back into heaven, to his disciples, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. There's the king speaking. All authority is mine, he says, And now I delegate authority to you. You go and make disciples of all nations. It's a wonderful thought. A wonderful thought. He is God's king. And it means, first of all, that all things in heaven and earth are under his authority. But secondly, it means that he will himself one day return and rule over the earth in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. Notice in Luke chapter 1 that it says, "...He will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever." Now this goes back to that covenant that God made in the Old Testament with David. Remember David wanted to build God a house? God said, No, David, your hands are covered with blood. You're a man of war. David, I so appreciate your heart that I'm going to build a house for you. And he didn't mean a physical structure. He meant a dynasty, a line of kings, a household. And he says, now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men of the earth. I will provide a place for my people Israel will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. I will also give you rest from your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, and you will be you will come, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever I will be his father and he will be my son now that's an amazing statement remember this is oriental thinking here God is not merely saying he will be my servant but God is saying regarding David's son he will be my son and I will be his father and we know that this this covenant this statement in the covenant was partially fulfilled in Solomon David's son who did build that magnificent temple in Jerusalem but there is meaning here beyond that because there is one who is greater than Solomon who came and who is the son of David and that is the Lord Jesus Christ And it is he, David's son, who will reign over the house of Jacob, that is Israel, forever and forever. In Psalm 2, God declares this to be true. I have established my king on Zion, my holy hill. And the king says, I will proclaim the decrees of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son." Today I have become your father. But how the Davidic king, one of David's sons, could say that in one sense. But there is one who can say it in the ultimate sense. And who in the New Testament is said to be the fulfillment of those words. To whom God said, You are my son. Today I have become your father. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ who is the son of David, and he will return and rule over the earth in fulfillment of all of these prophecies to David and others. And so Messiah is not only God's co-equal, but Messiah is his king, and that's what the name, the Son of the Most High, means. What can be our response to this? None other than what Psalm 2 says. Therefore, you kings... This is now Messiah speaking to the kings, other kings of the earth. You kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. First thing he says is, Wise up. Be instructed. He goes on to say, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun. Kiss the sun lest he be angry with you and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. To kiss the sun is the picture of, of one coming before a mighty king and bowing down and kissing his ring or kissing his feet. There's a picture of reverence, a picture of submission to this great king. And so Messiah says, kiss the sun. Lest the wrath of God come upon you. Matthew Henry said, Blessed will be those in the day of wrath who, by trusting in Christ, have made him their refuge and patron. Have you taken refuge in the Lord? Have you made him your protector? Have you come to him for salvation? You see, this term, the Son of the Highest, demands a commitment from us. We have to make a choice. We have to choose either to live as a willing subject of this kingdom by taking refuge in Christ or to live as a condemned rebel outside of his kingdom only to be destroyed by his wrath. And every one of us faces that decision. Whether we will willingly subject ourselves to him, that is, as it were, come to this king and kiss him, or if we will turn and go our own way to our own destruction. The Son of the Most High has David's throne, but I'll tell you something. Today, the throne he's looking for is the throne of your heart. That's the throne he wants to have. And that's the throne he deserves to have. Because he's the son of the most high who came for the lowest of us and died on the cross for our sin. So that God can now now forgive us if we will kiss the son and give our lives to him. Let's pray together. friend, have you come to that place in your own spiritual pilgrimage? This one who is the son of the most high longs to be the king who sits on the throne of your heart. And let me be clear, your heart represents the real you. It's where you do business. It's where your decisions are made. It's where your values are fashioned. It's where you decide what is important. There in that heart, Jesus Christ desires and deserves to be king. Will you let him save you? Will you let him come into your heart and establish his rule there? There is no greater privilege, no higher honor than you can have that you can have than to allow him to so rule. And you can do that right now just by asking him to come in and giving him your heart, telling him to take the throne of your life. Will you do that? Lord Jesus, what a name is this for you. It is a name filled with glory. And we give you glory and praise today that you, the Son of the Highest, came born of a virgin for those of us who are the lowest among men. And you came that you might raise us to reign with yourself. We bless your name and we adore you today. Would you stand with me, please, with your head bowed? Let's sing together. O oh, come, let us adore Him. Oh.